You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Hey crew, Mark Hatmaker here, coming to you from the Command Sharia. Uh, before we get into the uh, uh, the combat portion of this, I'm going to issue some thanks out there to the, the, the kind wishes out there. As some of you know, we uh, had a F2 tornado. Uh, well, according to the National Weather Service, it touched down, uh, it started on the touchdown approximately 200 yards uh, west of my home, and then uh, I was kind enough to travel through. But no, the home is here. We are fine and safe. Uh, property damage oh sure still digging out but we're good to go uh, do uh, to uh, all the, the the hale and hardy ones who've uh, stepped in uh, i'm just shocked and astonished and grateful beyond all get out but let's get on to today's uh, lesson or lecture actually let's talk about the history of orthodox stanzas south pawing and otherwise and even uh, chosen south pauls or uh, it, it really doesn't matter i'm going to kind of do a little bit of maundering here as we move through a little bit of uh, taking a look at uh, some animal mythology and then a little bit of a uh, sword history and then wind up where we're at now it doesn't matter what combat stance you got i mean what you're comfy in or you're comfy in now i started out the first probably decade fighting orthodox stance and then i uh, switched over with a purposeful 90-day experiment to uh, uh do an educated uh, south paul uh, really off of something uh, something that a man boxing legend uh, uh emmanuel stewart said and i thought yeah i'm gonna give this a shot and see what i think of it and to be honest with you never really went back uh so in one hand, sometimes I can run out some things a bit ambidextrous, but uh, not necessarily so. I found out that uh, uh, educated Southpaw uh, works for me. It doesn't mean it's correct. It just works for me. Now we got to find out. It, this is really meant to be kind of seat to find out what feels right to you, because usually we do have a really designated good side to work for us. And then we're going to do a little bit of uh, delving into history. Uh, but uh, to really help us uh, narrow this in to show us how prevalent having a dominant side is, if you have a pet, now you, do you have a kitten? If you so, if you do, go play with it. Dangle something in front of it. And, you know, activate his play fighting mode. I mean, watch it bat at the stand-in enemy with his four paw. And if you don't have a kitten, you know, perhaps a dog, go play with it. Rile him up a bit. And, you know, toss a toy in the ground and then, you know, you know, kick it around. So he's wanting to kind of pin it down. Watch him pin that toy with the forepaw and then go to work with the jaws. Uh, no, you don't have a dog or a kitten in the house. How about a toddler? If you have an 18 to 36 month old human around the house, go play with them. Roll a ball with them and watch them pick it up or roll it back. If you don't have kitties or dogs or toddlers, well, let's try something you do have. While reading this or listening to this, my voice, look around, pick up the nearest small object within your reach. Right now, pick it up. All right, now that we've all played with our pets or our kids or the very least picked up a stapler or some such thing, we can repeat these activities and pay attention to the handedness of all entities. The kitten will bat primarily with a dominant paw. So you show this, cats have a dominant paw. The dog will pin its mock prey to the ground primarily with a dominant paw. Incidentally, dogs also wag their tails a bit more on their paw dominant side. My dog's right paw, by the way, uh, as is my cat. The uh, toddler will have begun ballparking on a dominant hand in this in the 18 to 39 month period it's not something you want to try and train out of it's just how we come down their body may be subject to bilateral symmetry but we do come up with some preferences uh 
There you go. And as well, you already know which is your dominant hand, primarily what you sign with. I mean, I know some people say, well, I sign my hand and I do this and I do that back and forth with some tasks. But come on, we all really know what we come down to where the, the majority of the tasks fall. Now, what am I wanting you to divine in all this? I mean, let's look at how, how each of these animals, self-included, position the body in the use of the dominant hand, all right? When the kitten bats their, uh, bats their paws or an adult cat fights, that dominant paw is primarily to the fore. It is not concealed by a tr- uh, behind a tri-legged stance and held aloft to the rear. The dog reaches and pins with the dominant paw to the fore of the body. It doesn't stand with its subdominant fore and then reaches out there with a really extended leg where it would have muscular control to pin it down. And the toddler advances with that top dominant side forward whenever it's throwing. There's a good chance that when you picked up something, you chose something from your dominant side as opposed to reaching across your body with the uh, dominant hand. In coordinated precision task, humans more often than not position themselves with the dominant side forward. And that is key. When we're looking to do something precise, we're going to get up there and use that dominant side. Now, it's only when we see the power, like if we're going to throw a ball, we'll take that uh, dominant side to the rear so we can get a bit more wind up in what's going on. Again, power-related task, we see that reversal of stance that is placed in the dominant side of the rear. We see this reversal in swinging an axe, which I've done a hell of a lot of in the past week, and I got probably a few more months of that. Or uh, throwing a ball or throwing a spear. That's where we'll see this dominant hand go to the rear for the wind up. Uh, we often see it in combat sports where it is uh, called the orthodox stance, which is placing your dominant hand to the rear. Now we got to ask ourselves, why is this in the sport? And we're only asking this in the sport context. Why is this? Why would we take the coordinated hand, the good hand, and wind up that bad boy to the rear? Well, the first thought with our minds already anchored on power from the preceding conversation, we might assume that, well, I really want to wind up and make a count. Well, that may be true in some cases, but consider this. Your dominant side is already stronger and more coordinated than your subdominant side. This being the case, why do we not just as easily assume that putting power and coordination to the fore and the weaker to the rear, allowing the weaker hand to gain power by dint of travel and wind-up to be more wisely orthodox? See, if you think about this, we've already got a strong hand. It's up front, and that subdominant is a little bit weaker. And if we put that to the rear and leave it that way, we're going to wind up equalizing that power bit. Instead of we're kind of putting all of our eggs in one basket, and actually not really because we're taking coordination, throwing it to the back and say, let's just use this as a power hand instead. Odd when you think about it in a sense. Now, I wager what we're seeing here with the dominant hand of the rear is actually a cultural artifact. We might be doing it for maybe a good reason or maybe no good reason at all. I mean, uh, and one of these reasons might be based on weapons training. If we look at early warfare, we'll use uh, hoplites for this example. We see warriors wielding sword or spear in the dominant hand and shield or buckler in the subdominant hand. The buckler is to the fore, allowing the warrior to make coordinated strong offense from behind this protection. You need the protection. So you got the, uh, uh, if I'm uh, fighting with the sword in my right hand, let's say it's my coordinated hand, the hand I, I, I sign my name with, put the buckler or the shield on the on the left, step that rear foot back so I can protect off the left side and come out with the power from behind. Or it's not really a power, just come out with the uh, the weapon side from behind this protection because I want coordination. It wasn't really about power putting it at the rear. It was about where the coordinated limb is. 
Now, these sword and shield tactics ran deep in early warfare. It's easy to see a translation from this weapon combat stance to the unarmed combat stance. I mean, much pugilistic research indicates that early boxing or any early throwing of hands, for that matter, mimicked the sword and buckler stance. And in much of the tactics, lead arm, the lead arm was used to ward off blows, the stiff arm for distance with the rear hand providing the power. It was an easy correlate. So if you had a, a culture that was used to the sword and buckler, whenever it says, let's do the hands, when you dropped them, you adopted the same stance, fended off with the uh, subdominant arm to the fore, pushed with it, poleaxed with it, and shoved off and tried to come in with that rear hand to do a bit uh, more of that chopping. It's not until the era of Mendoza that be, we begin to really, really hear tales of the lead hand doing some major work and begin to develop the jab, although the dominant hand is still held to the rear. Uh, the jab is really more of a probe or still being used as a more educated uh, distancing tool. Now, what was occurring in the Mendoza era that might have been spurring this uh, greater use of the lead dominant hand or otherwise? I mean, what exactly was going on historically? And again, I wage here we're again looking at an influence from weapons culture. See, sword and buckler culture gradually gave way to mere sword culture with the personal sword. We can think of uh, this is the, where the rise of fencing really comes into play. Uh, and this is primarily also a cultural artifact, artifact having to do with um, better technology. Uh, so we are going from sword and buckler giving way to uh, personal swords being carried about with no shield being carrying about. And uh, once this development began and metallurgy allowed for lighter blades requiring less power to swing, the dominant hand to the fore began to hold sway. Because, we, you know, you think about it, we don't need to have a big wind-up anymore because we have far lighter materials that it allows us to use that precision, precise coordination that that lead dominant hand is uh, already used to doing all the time when we picked up the stapler, we played with the toddler, we watched the cat or the dog. Now, we do see some holdovers with uh, early manners using the cloak spun around the forearm as a sort of buckler stand-in. But for the most part, once the buckler is gone, the stanch is switched. We see that uh, the uh, dominant hand of the rear and heavier blades being switched up, now it's to the fore. You see no fence or fighting from that, uh, the, the uh, blade across their, uh, the front of the body coming from the rear. It seems that pugilism noticed the value of lead hand attacks and parries and adapted these tactics themselves, they said, oh, we need to have something uh, fighting from the rear, but the stanch shift didn't happen. They took some of these precise attacks and put it into the subdominant hand and allowed that to go to work. Not saying it's wrong, just kind of like a little bit of historical monitoring about what we might, uh, how all this might have uh, occurred. I mean, it's all historical conjecture, but it has a ring of high probability to it that might make us consider that if we train dominant hand to the rear, we might be simply perpetuating an artifact from the hoplite era, perhaps for no real good engineering reason, and perhaps we might have much to learn from kittens and dogs and toddlers. Just food for thought. All right, take care of yourself, crew. We'll catch you on the next episode. Like, share, yeah, support the podcast, uh, yeah, be kind to it, review it, and the algorithm gods are apparently kind. I don't know how all this stuff works, but there you go. Well, if you dig what we just discussed today, uh, I'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast. Hell, support it if you want. I'm not your dad. Do what you want. And if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, extremeselfprotection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musings. Mm-hmm.